0: chapter 10 of pioneers of france in the new world part 2 champlain and his associates this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org pioneers of france in the new world by francis parkman part 2 samuel champlain and his associates chapter 10 lake champlain 1609 it was past the middle of june and the expected warriors from the upper country had not come, a delay which seems to have given Champlain little concern, for without waiting longer he set out with no better allies than a band of Montagnais. But as he moved up the St. Lawrence, he saw, thickly clustered in the bordering forest, the lodges of an Indian camp, and, landing, found his Huron and Algonquin allies. Few of them had ever seen a white man, and they surrounded the steel-clad strangers in speechless wonder. Champlain asked for their chief, and the staring throng moved with him towards a lodge where sat not one chief but two, for each band had its own. There were feasting, smoking, and speeches, and the needful ceremony over, all descended together to Quebec, for the strangers were bent on seeing those wonders of architecture, the fame of which had pierced the recesses of their forests. On their arrival they feasted their eyes and glutted their appetites, yelped consternation at the sharp explosions of the arquebuses and the roar of the cannon, pitched their camps, and bedecked themselves for their war-dance. In the still night their fire glared against the black and jagged cliff, and the fierce red light fell on tawny limbs convulsed with frenzied gestures, and ferocious stampings on contorted visages, hideous with paint, on brandished weapons, on stone war-clubs, stone hatchets, and stone-pointed lances, while the drum kept up its hollow boom and the air was split with mingled yells. The war-feast followed, and then all embarked together. Champlain was in a small shallop, carrying besides himself eleven men of Pontgrave's party, including his son-in-law Marais and the pilot La Route. They were armed with the arquebuse, a matchlock or firelock somewhat like the modern carbine, and from its shortness not ill-suited for use in the forest. On the 28th of June they spread their sails and held their course against the current, while around them the river was alive with canoes, and hundreds of naked arms plied the paddle with a steady, measured sweep. They crossed the lake of St. Peter, threaded the devious channels among its many islands, and reached at last the mouth of the Rivier des Iroquois, since called the Richelin or the Saint-Jean. Here, probably on the side of the town of Sorrel, the leisurely warriors encamped for two days, hunted, fished, and took their ease, regaling their allies with venison and wildfowl. They quarrelled, too. Three-fourths of their number seceded, took to their canoes in dudgeon, and paddled towards their homes, while the rest pursued their course up the broad and placid stream. Walls of verdure stretched on left and right. Now aloft in the lonely air rose the cliffs of Balciel, and now, before them, framed in circling forest, the basin of Chambly spread its tranquil mirror, glittering in the sun. The shallop outsailed the canoes. Champlain, leaving his allies behind, crossed the basin and tried to pursue his course, but as he listed in the stillness, the unwelcome noise of rapids reached his ear, and by glimpses through the dark foliage of the Islets of St. John he could see the gleam of snowy foam and the flashing of hurrying waters. Leaving the boat by the shore in charge of four men, he went with Marais, Route, and five others, to explore the wild before him. They pushed their way through the damps and shadows of the wood, through thickets and tangled vines, over mossy rocks and mouldering logs. Still the hoarse surging of the rapids followed them, and when, parting the screen of foliage, they looked out upon the river, they saw it thick-set with rocks, where, plunging over ledges, gurgling under drift logs, darting along clefts, and boiling in chasms, the angry waters filled the solitude with monotonous ravings. Champlain retraced his steps. He had learned the value of an Indian's word. His allies had promised him that his boat could pass unobstructed throughout the whole journey. It afflicted me, he says, and troubled me exceedingly to be obliged to return without having seen so great a lake, full of fair islands and bordered with fine countries which they had described to me. When he reached the boat, he found the whole savage crew gathered at the spot. He mildly rebuked their bad faith, but added that though they had deceived him, he, as far as might be, would fulfil his pledge. To this end he directed Marais, with the boat and the greater part of the men, to return to Quebec, while he, with two who offered to follow him, should proceed in the Indian canoes. The warriors lifted their canoes from the water, and bore them on their shoulders half a league through the forest to the smoother stream above. Here the chiefs made a muster of their forces, counting twenty-four canoes and sixty warriors." all embarked again, and advanced once more, by marsh, meadow, forest, and scattered islands, then full of game, for it was an uninhabited land, the war-path and the battle-ground of hostile tribes. The warriors observed a certain system in their advance. Some were in front as a vanguard, others formed the main body, while an equal number were in the forests on the flanks and rear, hunting for the subsistence of the whole, for though they had a provision of parched maize pounded into meal, They kept it for use when, from the vicinity of the enemy, hunting should become impossible. Late in the day they landed and drew up their canoes, ranging them closely side by side. Some stripped sheets of bark to cover their camp sheds, others gathered wood, the forest being full of dead dry trees, others felled the living trees for a barricade. They seemed to have had steel axes, obtained by barter from the French, for in less than two hours they had made a strong defensive work, in the form of a half-circle, open on the river-side, where their canoes lay on the strand, and large enough to enclose all their huts and sheds. Some of their number had gone forward as scouts, and returning reported no signs of an enemy. This was the extent of their precaution, for they placed no guard, but all, in full security, stretched themselves to sleep, a vicious custom from which the lazy warrior of the forest rarely departs. They had not forgotten, however, to consult their oracle the medicine-man pitched his magic lodge in the woods, formed of a small stack of poles, planted in a circle and brought together at the tops like stacked muskets. Over these he placed the filthy deerskins which served him for a robe, and, creeping in at a narrow opening, hid himself from view. Crouched in a ball upon the earth, he invoked the spirits in mumbling, inarticulate tones, while his naked auditory, squatted on the ground like apes, listened in wonder and awe. Suddenly the lodge moved, rocking with violence to and fro, by the power of the spirits, as the Indians thought, while Champlain could plainly see the tawny fist of the medicine-man shaking the poles. They begged him to keep a watchful eye on the peak of the lodge, whence fire and smoke would presently issue, but with the best efforts of his vision he discovered none. Meanwhile the medicine-man was seized with such convulsions that when his divination was over his naked body streamed with perspiration. In loud, clear tones, and in an unknown tongue, He invoked the spirit, who was understood to be present in the form of a stone, and whose feeble and squeaking accents were heard at intervals, like the wail of a young puppy. In this manner they consulted the spirit, as Champlain thinks, the devil, at all their camps. His replies for the most part seemed to have given them great content, yet they took other measures, of which the military advantages were less questionable. The principal chief gathered bundles of sticks, and without wasting his breath, struck them in the earth in a certain order, calling each by the name of some warrior, a few taller than the rest representing the subordinate chiefs. Thus was indicated the position which each was to hold in the expected battle. All gathered round and attentively studied the sticks, ranged like a child's wooden soldiers, or the pieces on a chessboard. Then, with no further instruction, they formed their ranks, broke them, and reformed them again and again with excellent alacrity and skill." Again the canoes advanced, the river widening as they went. Great islands appeared, leagues in extent, isle a Long Island, Grand Isle, channels where ships might float and broad reaches of water stretched between them, and Champlain entered the lake which preserves his name to posterity. Cumberland Head was passed, and from the opening of the great channel between Grand Isle and the Main he could look forth on the wilderness sea. Edged with woods, the tranquil flood spread southward beyond sight. Far on the left rose the forest ridges of the green mountains, and on the right the Adirondacks, haunts in these later years of amateur sportsmen from counting-rooms or college halls. Then the Iroquois made them their hunting-ground, and beyond, in the valleys of the Mohawk, the Onondaga, and the Janiske, stretched the long line of their five cantons and palisaded towns. At night they encamped again the scene is a familiar one to many a tourist, and perhaps, standing at sunset on the peaceful strand, Champlain saw what a roving student of this generation has seen on those same shores at that same hour, the glow of the vanished sun behind the western mountains, darkly piled in mist and shadow along the sky. Near at hand, the dead pine, mighty in decay, stretching its ragged arms, athwart the burning heaven. The crow perched on its top like an image carved in jet, and aloft, the night-hawk, circling in his flight, and with a strange whirring sound, diving through the air each moment for the insects he makes his prey. The progress of the party was becoming dangerous. They changed their mode of advance and moved only in the night. All day they lay close in the depth of the forest, sleeping, lounging, smoking tobacco of their own raising, and beguiling the hours, no doubt, with the shallow banter and obscene jesting with which knots of Indians are wont to amuse their leisure. At twilight they embarked again, paddling their cautious way till the eastern sky began to redden. Their goal was the rocky promontory where Fort Ticonderoga was long afterwards built. Thence they would pass the outlet of Lake George, and launch their canoes again on that Como of the wilderness, whose waters, limpid as a fountain-head, stretched far southward between their flanking mountains. Landing at the future site of Fort William Henry, they would carry their canoes through the forest to the River Hudson, and, descending it, attack perhaps some outlying town of the Mohawks. In the next century this chain of lakes and rivers became the grand highway of savage and civilized war, linked to memories of momentous conflicts. The Allies were spared so long a progress. On the morning of the twenty-ninth of July, after paddling all night, they hid as usual in the forest on the western shore, apparently between Crown Point and Ticonderoga. The warriors stretched themselves to their slumbers, and Champlain, after walking till nine or ten o'clock after walking till nine or ten o'clock through the surrounding woods, returned to take his repose on a pile of spruce boughs, sleeping he dreamed a dream wherein he beheld the Iroquois drowning in the lake and trying to rescue them. He was told by his Algonquin friends that they were good for nothing and had better be left to their fate for some time past. He had been beset every morning by his superstitious allies, eager to learn about his dreams and to this moment his unbroken slumbers had failed to furnish the desired prognostics. The announcement of this auspicious vision filled the crowd with joy, and at nightfall they embarked, flushed with anticipated victories. It was ten o'clock in the evening, when near a projecting point of land, which was probably Ticonderoga, they descried dark objects in motion on the lake before them. These were a flotilla of Iroquois canoes, heavier and slower than theirs, for they were made of oak bark, each party saw the other, and the mingled war-cries pealed over the darkened water. The Iroquois, who were near the shore, having no stomach for an aquatic battle, landed, and making night hideous with their clamours, began to barricade themselves. Champlain could see them in the woods, laboring like beavers, hacking down trees with iron axes taken from the Canadian tribes in war, and with stone hatchets of their own making. The allies remained on the lake, a bowshot from the hostile barricade, their canoes made fast together by poles lashed across. All night they danced with as much vigor as the frailty of their vessels would permit, their throats making amends for the enforced restraint of their limbs. It was agreed on both sides that the fight should be deferred till daybreak, but meanwhile a commerce of abuse, sarcasm, menace, and boasting gave unceasing exercise to the lungs and fancy of the combatants. Much, says Champlain, like the besiegers and besieged in a beleaguered town." As day approached, he and his two followers put on the light armor of the time. Champlain wore the doublet and long hose, then in vogue. Over the doublet he buckled on a breastplate, and probably a back piece, while his thighs were protected by cuisses of steel, and his head by a plumed casque. Across his shoulder hung the strap of his bandolier, or ammunition-box, at his side with his sword, and in his hand his arquebus. Such was the equipment of this ancient Indian fighter, whose exploits date eleven years before the landing of the Puritans at Plymouth, and sixty-six years before King Philip's war. Each of the three Frenchmen was in a separate canoe, and as it grew light they kept themselves hidden, either by lying at the bottom or covering themselves with an Indian robe. The canoes approached the shore, and all landed without opposition at some distance from the Iroquois, whom they presently could see filing out of their barricade, tall, strong men, some two hundred in number, the boldest and fiercest warriors of North America. They advanced through the forest with a steadiness which excited the admiration of Champlain. Among them could be seen three chiefs, made conspicuous by their tall plumes. Some bore shields of wood and hide, and some were covered with a kind of armor made of rough twigs interlaced with the vegetable fiber, supposed by Champlain to be cotton. The allies, growing anxious, called with loud cries for their champion, and opened their ranks that he might pass to the front. He did so, and advancing before his red companions in arms, stood revealed to the gaze of the Iroquois, who, beholding the warlike apparition in their path, stared in mute amazement. "'I looked at them,' says Champlain, "'and they looked at me. When I saw them getting ready to shoot their arrows at us, I levelled my arquebus, which I had loaded with four balls, and aimed straight at one of the three chiefs. The shot brought down two, and wounded another.' On this our Indians set up such a yelling that one could not have heard a thunderclap, and all the while the arrows flew thick on both sides. The Iroquois were greatly astonished and frightened to see two of their men killed so quickly, in spite of their arrow-proof armor. As I was reloading, one of my companions fired a shot from the woods, which so increased their astonishment that, seeing their chiefs dead, they abandoned the field and fled into the depth of the forest. The allies dashed after them. Some of the Iroquois were killed, and more were taken. Camp, canoes, provisions, all were abandoned, and many weapons flung down in the panic flight. The victory was complete. At night the victors let out one of the prisoners, told him that he was to die by fire, and ordered him to sing his death-song if he dared. Then they began the torture, and presently scalped their victim alive, when Champlain, sickening at the sight, begged leave to shoot him. They refused, and he turned away in anger and disgust, on which they called him back and told him to do as he pleased. He turned again, and a shot from his arquebuse put the wretch out of misery. The scene filled him with horror, but a few months later, on the Place de la Grève at Paris, he might have witnessed tortures equally revolting and equally vindictive, inflicted on the regicide Ravaillac by the sentence of grave and learned judges. The Allies made a prompt retreat from the scene of their triumph three or four days brought them to the mouth of the Richelain. Here they separated, the Hurons and Algonquins made for Ottawa, their homeward route, each with a share of prisoners for future torments. At parting, they invited Champlain to visit their towns and aid them again in their wars, an invitation which this paladin of the woods failed not to accept. The companions now remaining to him were the Montagnes. In their camp on the Richelieu, one of them dreamed that a war-party of Iroquois was close upon them, on which, in a torrent of rain, they left their huts, paddled in dismay to the islands above the lake of St. Peter, and hid themselves all night in the rushes. In the morning they took heart, emerged from their hiding-places, descended on Quebec, and went thence to Tadoussac, whither Champlain accompanied them. Here the squaws, stark naked, swam out to the canoes to receive the heads of the dead Iroquois, and, hanging them from their necks, danced in triumph along the shore. One of the heads and a pair of arms were then bestowed on Champlain, touching memorials of gratitude, which, however, he was by no means to keep for himself, but to present to the king. Thus did New France rush into collision with the redoubted warriors of the five nations. Here was the beginning, and in some measure doubtless the cause, of a long suite of murderous conflicts, bearing havoc and flame to generations yet unborn. Champlain had invaded the tiger's den, and now, in smothered fury, the patient savage would lie biding his day of blood. End of chapter 10